This is the Soil Sense podcast where we believe that building healthier soils is not just a prescription, but rather a pursuit. It's a journey that requires collaboration, curiosity, and communication among farmers, researchers, agronomists, consultants, and extension. You're going to hear their stories and discover how and why they're working together to make sense out of what's happening in the soil. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of Soil Sense. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. On this show, we often talk about what the data is telling us about farming concepts that are promising, but in some cases, maybe not yet mainstream. Today is a really exciting look at something that I think fits that description, intercropping. This idea of growing two crops at once is definitely not new, but many perceive it as something that is manageable on a small scale or maybe just in organic operations. However, we have on the show today a couple of researchers who are finding some really promising results with intercropping in farming systems of all sizes. We have on the show Lena Shaw, who's the research manager at the Southeast Research Farm in Saskatchewan. This is a really cool concept. It's a nonprofit producer-directed research farm that a group of farmers started in the 1990s to do research trials and demonstrations themselves. They are working with about 20 different crops and doing a lot of work in intercropping. Also on the show is Dr. Mike Osley, who's the research agronomist at the NDSU Carrington Research Extension Center. Mike works on a variety of things, including intercropping, cover crops, crop livestock integration, and precision agriculture, just to name a few. This conversation is really fascinating to me because it feels like we're talking about something that will be much, much more common in the next maybe five or ten years. We start the conversation, though, with Lena describing some of the basics of intercropping. Most broadly, intercropping would be intentionally growing more than one species at a time in an agricultural situation. So this is normal for livestock grazing to have more than one species. For grain crop production, it's not typical. So that could include things like cover crops when they're underseeded, where you've got sort of a cover crop that you're not intending to harvest for grain that's growing underneath a grain crop. And that could potentially be used as a forage. So that's a type of intercropping. The main type of intercropping that I've been concentrating on is growing two grain crops simultaneously and then separating the grain after it's harvested. So planting them together and harvesting them together. This is a, an adaptation that makes sense in the northern prairies because we don't have enough season length to double crop. We don't have enough season length to even plant an early crop and then seed another later crop into it. There's just not enough heat and moisture at the right times. So we're trying to grow two crops at the same time. Why? Because sometimes there's some synergies and just growing two crops randomly together isn't necessarily going to achieve synergies, but we have been seeing some where it's either maybe yielding more, reducing lodging so that the crop stands better, reducing diseases, sometimes reducing insect damage. Because a lot of our pests are very nicely adapted to monoculture production system but it's like throwing them a curveball when you give them two crops at the same time. They may not be as adapted to that. They may not be as successful or some of the beneficial insects or organisms may be more successful in controlling pest outbreaks. From a non-farmer here, it sounds like a logistical nightmare. I mean, how do you have two crops that, you know, the pest and disease pressure maybe comes at different times, the harvest readiness comes at different times. How do you coordinate all that? Well, so first off, I'd like to remind people not to underestimate farmers. 
So they've been able to find some combinations that are workable. There are obstacles, but they've been surmounted over and over again. So the seeding tools that we have in Saskatchewan are generally able to put down seed and fertilizer at the same time. So some of the systems that we're using, we're just putting down two seeds at the same time instead of seed and fertilizer, and then finding a different means to put down the fertilizer or just adding an additional tank or something like that. So sometimes there's some compromises that you make on seeding depth or seeding dates, but can still end up with a satisfactory compromise at seeding time. At harvest time, this is one of the most crucial things is trying to match the maturity of the crops. But for the most part, we know in our prairies, we know how long these crops take to mature under reasonably normal conditions, because if they didn't, they would be under snow every year. So it might be a five or six or seven day variance on when you would ideally harvest them. But between swathing, desiccation, and a bit of patience, a lot of the time there's a compromise that can be had on the harvesting. And the successful combinations work going through a combine. So you wouldn't think you could harvest chickpeas and flax together and have everything work out in the end coming through the machine. But what happens is that the larger seed helps to break up the material for the smaller seed. So the chickpeas are threshing the bowls for the flax. And until people see it happening, I don't think they always believe it actually works. But the farmers have figured out some equipment settings and all the ins and outs of their their combines, what's kind of optimal, and have figured it out. And I'm not an equipment specialist, so I rely a lot on my farmer contacts to be able, if someone has specific questions about specific settings for a particular piece of equipment, then I just refer them to the farmers who have figured it out because I do not underestimate them. I come from a farm background and I know their farmers are excellent problem solvers. It's almost becomes more fun because now they've got kind of fun problems to solve. And I think that's some of why they're enjoying this because it gives them manageable problems and all of a sudden they're doing something that people would think is impossible and doing it very well. Yeah, that's definitely something we're seeing as a result of this podcast is you talk to these farmers and the ones that are focused on soil health just seem to be having more fun than others. Uh, Mike, I know Lena mentioned the chickpeas and flax. What are some other inner crop combinations that you're seeing? So uh, actually, the uh, the first time I ever had a conversation about uh, intercropping with somebody, the focus was about field peas. You know, field peas are really good in rotation in many parts of North Dakota and beyond. But one of the biggest problems with field peas and some of the other legumes is after you harvest, uh, there's not much residue left. And so it can be kind of prone to erosion, especially since it's kind of an earlier season crop. So um, in that first conversation, we started talking about there's maybe some evidence that uh, canola probably pairs okay with field peas. And uh, when you pair the two together, then you start having some interesting things happen, maybe not only from a yield standpoint, but now you have two different types of stubble left over. The canola stubble is a lot more substantial, um, the stuff on the ground anyway compared to what the field peas might have left over. Plus, the canola helps to support the field peas, so they stand up a little straighter. So you maybe are are able to cut the the crop a little bit higher off the ground and leave a little bit more there. And so, you know, that's one combination that I think we're 
are particularly interested here in the Carrington area. We're testing the, the chickpea flax here too, but um, this isn't really typical chickpea geography where we're at, but the field pea canola would certainly fit pretty well in our geography. And there's a lot of interesting research questions with uh, that combination too. Have you looked at what the yield loss is versus just planting the field in straight canola or uh, straight field peas? Yeah, certainly. I think that's the number one issue, right? You, you always want to figure out what are you giving up or, or what are you gaining when you start making these different um, combinations. So I think for both Lena and myself, a lot of the focus of our research is based on what ratios of the different crops do you use together? What percent of your mixture is field peas, for instance, and what percent is canola? And then based on those different ratios, they tend to perform quite a lot differently from a yield perspective. And with some combinations like the chickpea flax, you know, the one crop the chickpeas are typically going to be your primary focus because they're usually worth quite a lot more. Uh, with the field pea canola, I think it kind of depends a little bit more and there's some vastly different markets for those crops and you might have a good contract for one crop or the other. But when you start looking at the different ratios, you know, it kind of dictates what you're going to be able to harvest in the end. So if you plant a mixture that's mostly field peas, you're probably going to get more field peas out of it when you harvest it. And what we're finding is that, like you might expect, when you start mixing two things, you're going to wind up getting less yield of any particular crop, right? So if you're used to getting 40 or 50 bushels per acre for field peas in a, in a single crop setting, put some canola in there, you're going to wind up probably less than that. And depending on how much canola you put in, uh, maybe you only drop five or 10 bushels, or if you put a lot of canola in there, you might end up dropping even more substantially. And so it's all about finding that balance of the ratio and trying to figure out what you want to be able to harvest in the end as part of it. But overall, the whole goal is to be able to yield more per acre total product than you would with either crop alone. That's really what it comes down to with the system is if you're not harvesting more total product than either crop on its own, it's not going to work out. The other thing that, that enters into it is the quality of the product that you're harvesting too. So ideally we're getting over yielding, but also if the quality of the product is better, then the value of it is better. So there's a number of factors that go into it. They call this land equivalency ratio, this over yielding idea. So if you get a 70% of your pea crop and 40% of a normal canola crop, then you've got 10% over yielding or a land equivalency ratio of 1.1 or 110%. 110-115% of a normal yield is fairly typical. What that means for the crop value is separate because obviously crops are worth different things. But then you do have to look at what's the differences in quality. And sometimes we're getting improvements in quality of the pulses, particularly because they're higher off the ground or for the chickpeas, it affects the maturity of the chickpeas. So there's better quality. So ideally, we're getting better quality, more yield and lower input costs. So, you know, it's not that Mike and I are that good at selling a strange idea. The reason this is popular and the reason why we keep getting asked to talk about this is because the farmers seem to be achieving greater overall profitability. And some of the times that's a little more yield. Sometimes it comes down to that they're spending less on their crop 
And the less tangible benefits sometimes are not putting rocks through their combine because they're able to cut the crop higher. There's some of the longtime intercroppers that just refuse to grow pulses like lentils and peas when they're not intercropped anymore because when they do, they end up putting a rock through their combine. And being able to harvest faster with less damage to your equipment is a less tangible but important metric for why farmers might want to look at this. Wow. No, that makes perfect sense. Uh, Mike, for you, you said you kind of, you've been looking to Lena, what they're doing up there as kind of for leadership. How did this idea first arrive on your desk? Is it from local farmers that are saying, hey, we're kind of interested in checking this out. What do you know about it? Or did you just see what she was doing up there and her group of farmers was doing up there and say, hey, that might work down here. How does that part work? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's a little bit of a combination there too. You know, we have some innovative farmers um, in our area that have been doing some version of intercropping, really just kind of experimenting and, and trying some things actually sometimes usually on a small scale, but a few of them were kind of going all in already. I think Lena and I first probably met, must've been two or three winters ago at this uh, meeting about ag innovation. And, and then uh, she was actually kind of the keynote uh, speaker at that meeting, discussing all the things that the farmers in Saskatchewan were already implementing, as well as the, the research that uh, she'd been working on. And, you know, that's kind of, I think, probably for me, when it really first clicked that this is maybe could be more than just a niche thing in, in North Dakota, too, uh, which is kind of where I had it placed pr- prior to that meeting. And I think maybe by niche, people have assumed that this was an organic technique, that this was you know, not really useful or accessible to a broad range of types of farms, sizes of farms. But what we've seen in Saskatchewan is that this is being taken up by both conventional and organic farmers, people with a lot of acres or people with quite small acres. The main thing is that they were wanting to get more out of the acres that they have, get more margins. And that's something that appeals broadly. As a former grain elevator manager, the idea of mixing grains, it makes me cringe. Like that was our worst nightmare. How are they handling that? Are they harvesting them at the same time and mechanically separating them later? That's right. So with this technique, I call it mixed grain intercropping because what you end up with at the end is a mixed grain. And so I tell people before they even think about putting seed in the ground, make sure you can separate it. Somebody asked me, well, could you seed canola and flax together? Well, that's a terrible idea. Those are very difficult to separate. But a pea and a canola are not hard to separate. And it takes relatively inexpensive equipment to separate those. There are what I would call more advanced combinations that you're more likely to get in trouble with that if people have experience and a lot of their own equipment and the time to deal with it, they could do it. Like growing lentils and peas with canola at the same time. That's been done, but you have to make sure you know what you're doing so that you don't end up with some unsaleable product of lentils with peas in it. So, and then you, you also have to be aware that you could have restrictions on some of the markets. Flax is one that we're hearing some you know, sensitivity on, partly because the markets are largely in Europe and they do not want GMO anything. So GMO soybean would be a problem or even a soybean that they might suspect is GMO might be a cause for rejection. Um, Having canola mixed in with flax currently, which we have canola volunteers all the time, that's cause for rejection. And that's not something I don't think that people would intentionally do. With the intercropping, you have to be quite careful of control of volunteers because maybe you think you've got two crops you can easily separate, but 
if having those two crops means that you aren't able to adequately control some volunteer situation like uh, canola or barley or something, then you've ended up with maybe three crops mixed together that is harder to deal with. There, there are things that I try to get people to be thinking about their intercrops well in advance of seeding and be thinking and planning for the separation before you can put it in the ground. It's a bad situation if you just harvest it and then try to go find someone to separate it and then find out after the fact, this is going to be either really expensive or the, the people that have the equipment locally do not want to deal with it. You figure it out before you even put it in the ground. And Mike, as you've kind of picked this up the last couple of years, what have you realized is the hard part of doing this? So, you know, uh, Elena mentioned about like kind of knowing what you're doing. What's that, that, the learning curve that you've had to sort of develop as you all have been experimenting with this? Yeah, you know, for us, you know, one of the trickiest things I think to achieve with we're planting multiple crops. So uh, like Lena was just suggesting, uh, you know, you, it's good to have different seed sizes for separation, right? Uh, but then you have this opposite problem at planting where if you have two vastly different seed sizes, you're dealing with two different optimal seeding depths. Uh, you know, you have your large seeded crops, which prefer to be planted a little deeper. Then you have your small seeded crop, which likes to be really shallow. And so how do you handle that at planting time? So for us, and, and I think generally what happens is people will kind of, you know, do some in-between depth. So you're not really seeding at the optimal depth for either crop. You're going too deep on the small crop and then a little bit shallow on the big seeded crop, right? So uh, we've had pretty good luck in doing that, but I think that, uh, you know, you really have to watch your soil moisture a lot closer and make sure that you're really keeping an eye on what your depth is because you don't have to go too far out of bounds, if you will, you know, where you could end up with some emergence issues on one crop or the other. And so, you know, I think that that's something I actually thought would be a bigger problem than has turned out to be so far for us. But I think it is still probably one of the biggest challenges is, is making sure you get good emergence on both of the, the species that you're intending to plant. One thing I wanted to add there. So one of the situations that I've heard of this year was where there was really poor soil moisture. One of the longtime intercroppers was doing uh, chickpeas and flax. Because they always seed at both those crops at the same depth. I think they were seeding at two and a half, three inches. And their flax establishment was generally poor. And as a result, they likely had more disease issues in their chickpeas because of a poor establishment of flax. However, you're seeding one crop. One of those crops is doing just fine. You might have a, a partial failure in the other one. That sometimes happens. But you have to keep in mind that some of these small seeded crops will be coming up at the same time as the large seeded crop. And the large seeded crop helps to break the ground for the small seeded one. So they're not having to do all of the action of pushing through the soil. The smaller seeded ones can kind of follow up through the groundbreaking that the larger seeded ones are doing. That's something that I've observed. It's not something I've proven scientifically or run tests on. It's just something I've seen with my eyeballs that I think makes sense. It actually brings me to, to the next question I want to ask you too about, which is, it seems like a really fine line between synergy and one out competing the other. What types of things do you have to do to walk that line to make sure you're optimizing the synergy, but not allowing one to out compete? You try to achieve that, but there's always a bit of lack of control that comes with this. The farmers that do this have to accept that they are not completely in control of the competition situation. So you try to 
set the table for the optimal situation, but then how it plays out just depends on conditions. So one of the ways that I try to set the table for optimal conditions is the relative seeding rates and the nitrogen particularly, the rates of available nitrogen in the soil. If you are seeding a nitrogen fixer and a non-nitrogen fixer, having high nitrate in the soil is going to favor the non-nitrogen fixer and tend to make the the nitrogen fixer less competitive in that situation. If you have relatively little soil available nitrogen or you're not putting very much nitrogen down, that usually results in the pulses or the the nitrogen fixers being a little more competitive and the non-nitrogen fixer maybe being a little bit nitrogen deficient, but as long as it's still able to perform its job as a companion, then it still can function. That's the, the tricky parts of this. To me, that's the more inter- that's the really interesting dynamics. Uh, most of the time, the equipment things we've worked out. It's the, it is a a, um, a tricky thing to balance, and year over year, you might end up with something that you didn't expect. So, you know, one of the situations I've heard of quite a bit this year was with some of the the pea and canola seeding. We had some late frosts and bad flea beetle damage. So some of the people that planted pea canola ended up with mostly just peas with very little canola in it because between the frost and the flea beetles, it took out the canola. So that's not a, certainly not a disaster situation, but it wasn't what they were planning for or expecting. Yeah. And, you know, I, I always tell people when we're starting to think about this, you know, we have, for instance, uh, soybean production trials that have been done ever since soybeans were introduced in the area and we're still doing soybean production trials and continually making improvements on that one crop. Okay. And so now we start telling people we're going to grow two crops at the same time. And just the amount of learning and information that you kind of have to have is just that much more complicated. It's hard enough to grow one crop and and keep trying to improve on your yield on the one crop. And now we're introducing a second crop. And it's harder, it's not easier, right? But the potential for benefit is also going to be there uh, for the people that are, are able to make that work. And I don't know that I quite understand, why does intercropping help with pests and diseases? What's going on there agronomically? To an extent, we don't actually know the specifics or the specific functions. So for example, one that we don't really know is but we're trying to learn about is this chickpea flax. Ascochyta fungal disease of chickpeas is a really serious, devastating disease of chickpeas. It results in farmers spraying three or four times, usually through the year for their chickpea crops when they're growing it without flax. With flax, they're usually able to reduce it to one application. And we don't know why it's helping. We're starting to get some indications just by varying the seeding rates and doing alternating versus mixed rows, it may give us some hints as to why it's working because the amount of flax matters. So it might be providing a physical barrier to spread of the spores. So that's just one possible example. But in general, past outbreaks are typical of monocultures and they become less and less prevalent as you have a more diverse community of Plants. That's true for nature in general, because the pest may be able to reproduce more effectively when it has a host 
and that is the only kind of plant there. So if you can make the host more diluted, you've got more different kinds of plants out there that that it can't reproduce on, then that could reduce it. You may be able to increase some beneficial biological insects or fungus or something in that system because those beneficial insects tend to like having more diversity. That tends to be where you find beneficial insects is in the the shelter belts, in the hedgerows, in the, the places where there is more diversity and there's less disturbance. A lot of the people that are doing the intercropping are also doing no-till. They're doing various other techniques that, that are allowing beneficial insects and soil organisms to thrive. So combined with those effects, I think we're seeing some complex biological benefits, but there hasn't been the biology science brought to bear on a lot of the specifics of this, particularly in the like Canadian prairies or the northern prairies. But if we can get the entomologists out to try to study this, if we can get some of the pathologists out to try to do more specific studies, I think we could get some answers. But right now, this is my, you know, coming from a farm, if I see something works, then I try to try to figure out how to make it work better. I don't necessarily have to understand why it works. I'd like someone to figure out why it works. But as a farmer, it's not your job necessarily to figure out why something works. You just figure out whether or not it does and then do more of that. So my very pragmatic approach with all of this has followed along those lines as a very generalist agriculture researcher. But I'm trying to find partners and you know funding to be able to answer more of those questions of why we're seeing less pests and under what conditions we're seeing less pests because we can't assume automatically that it always works. So we need to optimize it to achieve that. As a a researcher, I don't like to focus too much on a single year's observations, but we did have something really, I think, incredible happen this last year in our chickpea flax trial in Carrington. We were testing the use of fungicides in the chickpea flax. And essentially kind of what we saw was when we applied a, a fungicide to a straight chickpea crop, uh, we cut down on the disease pressure by about half. And then when we added an intercrop, so we added our flax to the chickpeas, it was a similar level of, of disease reduction. But then when we combined the intercrop with the fungicide, uh, we were able to cut the disease pressure by half again. And so um, you don't oftentimes see anything quite so synergistic in an agricultural system. But this is one time where the the chemistry and the biology side of our tools seem to be playing together really nice and building off of each other. And again, I I don't have any better explanation than, than she does for why this would be happening. But again, it's at least a little bit of evidence that says through biology, we can help make our ag systems more resilient on their own and still have the tools to really uh, help mitigate the risks associated with production. And why does an episode on intercropping belong on a soil health podcast? What are the soil health benefits here? One of the the soil health principles is diversity. And that's probably the first one that I talk about when I'm saying why is intercropping relevant to soil health? Because we've just found a way to improve diversity in a straight grain system. And that's an area where we've typically had very low diversity, where 
it's ideal to have one species of plant on a square mile of land. That's an incredible lack of diversity. Whereas in animal agriculture systems, the having more diversity is relatively easy to achieve if people want to. I think of it as kind of a farmer hack for diversity and a potentially very profitable one. And then one of the other ones is, is the ground cover that compared to pulses on their own, I think these intercrops can provide better protection for the soil. So that could be reducing erosion, uh, reducing the temperature fluctuations that are going on on the soil. So there's that. And then we don't know what effect having an intercrop has on the diversity of soil organisms. But in general, there's a, there's a, I think a fairly accepted idea that the diversity of plants contributes to better diversity of organisms in the soil. So we're just trying to help. It's kind of an exciting time from, from that front alone. And, you know, we think we've recently, you know, brought in a few more people that uh, understand the, the microbial side a little better and hopefully we can get some answers. But just again, when you start looking at uh, a crop like canola, which doesn't host uh, mycorrhizal fungi. Um, so you essentially have a season there where these uh, mycorrhizal fungi either colonize weeds or they just kind of lay dormant. And then the next year we grow a different crop, you know, they kind of come back to life. But now if you can have a host and non-host crop growing together and you have more of that continuity, then you're not going to have necessarily as much of a lag period where these fungi have to kind of reawaken and proliferate and they're theoretically they're already going to be more abundant and available for the next crop well a lot of times i don't know what i what i don't know and so i like to leave these last five minutes of the interview to just ask about kind of what i didn't get to but you think would be relevant to an episode specifically on intercropping as part of this soil health series so it's, it's kind of a free-for-all whatever you would like to add um the floor is yours i guess I think there's there's a tremendous role for ag research. And, you know, this is probably a little self-serving for me and Mike to plug ag research. But this is a, a, a tricky situation that we can help farmers learn how to optimize this. But in order to do that, it takes funding. And funding is hard to get for this because it's seen as so niche and uncertain. But if people want to see this type of trials done, then they need to be talking to their commodity groups. They need to be talking to whatever organizations fund ag research trials in their area to try to make sure that there's some money and resources to even put towards some small trials. It doesn't take a lot to get started. And then if things are promising, then you proceed from there. But that's that's something I'd like to plug. We've had some pretty good farmer support in Saskatchewan for this, but there's still a long ways to go to have it be seen as a is a more mainstream kind of a, a funding priority. So I'll yeah put in a plug for that because I think what we've been able to do with very little money is really good. And we need to not only keep that money coming, but there's so many questions that we need to try to answer that it needs to be expanded. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with what Lena just said. You know, and I also just kind of wanted to just say that you know, it's been pretty refreshing from from my perspective too to get out there and just see what some of the the farmers are willing to try from an innovation standpoint and you know it's, it's it's kind of exciting to get out there trying something that 
you know, most of the time we're just uh, moving the needle a little bit on any given topic. You know, when we start talking about intercropping, uh, we're really talking about doing something completely new to a lot of people. And so, you know, it's really, really kind of a, a neat opportunity to get out there and, and start uh, playing around with these ideas and see the farmers get excited about some of these things. And, you know, it's really a, all about on-farm experimentation with this concept because everybody's setup's a little bit different. You know, we're working on the research end uh, to, you know, come up with maybe some of the better ratios or some of these different agronomic practices to, to work with these systems. But, but the way you do this on-farm is probably going to look a lot different from one farm to the next, you know. And so people are coming up with their own system, their own ideas, you know, and just to kind of taking what, what information we can provide them and, and really uh, applying it in their own unique way. And also one of the strengths of this intercropping thing, and I'm not saying this is just me, it's multiple people that have involved, like Scott Chalmers and, and others, is that we're getting the ideas from the farmers trying to say, well, what questions do you need us to try to answer? What's the most useful thing we can do to try to be helpful and answer questions? And then try to do those trials in the most effective way, the most open way where we let farmers come and see how we're doing it and what the results are. And then farmers turn around and go and do field scale trials on their own. So I try to encourage people to do, you know, vary the rate of the flax that they're putting in with their chickpeas because they can pretty easily with the equipment that they have and the controls they have in the cab and the GPS and everything, do a few big strips in their field. And then you just need to go out and look at it in the summer. And some it, it can be quite visual where you've got, you know, different balances of crops, depending on how much seed you put out there. And so that can be very instructive for them. As a diffusion of a new technology, having people be able to do their own little trials and tweaks and adaptations is actually an advantage. So it's not like they just have to buy into a package system. They are able to dabble and try it out and regionally adapt it endlessly. That's an advantage. Yeah, somebody asked me uh, last winter about variable rating and intercrop you know where you some parts of your field you put it heavy on canola other parts of the field heavy on chickpeas and that just kind of blew my mind that people are already trying to go that direction and i'm like you know we're a long ways away from being able to tell you how to do this this is this is 100 percent farmer experimentation they're trying to make that work yeah right? and i have just heard of people field. doing the variable rate seeding so they could do variable rate seeding of two or three different crops at the same time. So you can have a triple crop of three crops and then variable rate the fertilizer on that also. That means there's a lot of room for agronomists to help them develop the maps, to help develop recipes and then help them interpret what worked and what didn't. And it's complicated, but it's there's a lot of room for creativity and, and I think it's a lot more fun. I, I can't imagine trying to do research on only one crop and, you know, just trying to figure out how to squeeze a smidgen more yield by applying one more product. That's, that, that, does, that sounds like purgatory to me. So <laughs> I like doing what I'm doing here. 
What a fascinating conversation, and I am definitely excited to see where this intercropping research goes. Huge thank you to both Lena Shaw and Dr. Mike Osley for being on the show. Thanks also to the North Dakota Corn Council and the North Central Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education Program for making this podcast series possible. If you're enjoying the Soil Sense podcast, let us know. Great places to do that are on Twitter or by leaving us a rating and review on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. If you want more information about any of the topics discussed, check out our website, www.ndsoilsense.com. We're really excited to bring you another great episode next week. Mm-hmm.